This is Moss Whelan and Story in Mind, and I'm interviewing uh, Don DeBrant. We met at uh, VCon 42, and uh, we were on a panel uh, called Whedon's Worlds, I believe. Yep, that is correct. VCon 42, Whedon's Worlds, which is a panel that has been done now for like uh, something like 20 years in a row. And it's Michael. It was... yeah. Was was he the was was he the the sort of the gear the mastermind or no? Strangely enough, I would say that the gear the mastermind that really triggered it would would be uh, his daughter Pauline. Right. Uh, Pauline and I used to date, and she was a a big vampire fan. And when she heard about the that they were making, she was also a huge movie geek. Cool. And when she heard that they were going to make Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the movie, into a TV series, she told me, you know, we have to watch this. Right. There's absolutely no question. So I said, okay. You know, I mean, I was not a huge vampire geek myself, but I was like, all right, yeah, I saw the movie. I enjoyed the movie. Okay. So we sat down, and uh, right from the very, very first episode, I was hooked. Oh, I they just, got you. Oh, absolutely. The, the, the very first episode, the very first scenes with, uh, with Darla uh, posing as a a schoolgirl to, to oh, yeah, yeah. trick and, and seduce and kill a student. You're going back to the pilot episode. That's yeah. the very first episode. That's right, that's I, right. I, I was absolutely hooked. And at the end of the episode with the little grr arg, you know, I got to see that for the very first time. I was like, I'm going to be watching this show every week. You know, I said it straight out. And that was the beginning of a lifelong love affair. And uh, she turned her father onto it. And he became uh, a huge fan. And then, uh, because he's, uh, uh, or was a, uh, a movie critic for many years. That's right. That's his sort of take on, you know, he, he's very intrigued in the whole process and the other stuff that Joss has done. And so, we, you know, I, I think it was Michael's idea to do the panel, but the panel would not have existed if it hadn't have been for Pauline grabbing me all those years ago <laughs> and saying, you have to watch this. That's awesome. And, and, and so, say, VCon, for you, did VCon exist before that? Were, were you and Pauline, was, was Michael going, or was this... Oh, yes. Uh, Michael, uh, Michael has been a science fiction fan for many, many years, and uh, Pauline has been going to science fiction fans since she was uh, an embryo. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So she, <laughs> she grew up in the science fiction community, and oh, wow. I and I've been going to VCon since right. Oh, I think my first con was was VCon thirteen, where I was only there for a few hours, and then my first full con was VCon fifteen, and I've been going every year since then. So uh, mid eighties, yeah. Then yeah, yeah. And two, I was. I was in. I went to one in the mid '80s, and it was at UBC. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was at UBC for many years. In uh, usually either the Gage residences or mm-hmm. the, or the Totem residences, and I have many fond fond memories of uh, of of going to Beacon back then. It had its own particular vibe, and you know we'd take over entire quads, and they they'd throw room parties in the central corridor, and that would branch out to all the other different rooms. Oh, it's fantastic. Now I'm imagining this massive room party. That's fantastic. Also, I have the best self-promotion story that I I know of. Let's do it. Uh, 
if you've ever been in those rooms, you know they're 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 tiny little rooms, and you know they're st stacked up many floors high, and they they have a little window that does open. And uh, I'm in my room getting ready to do something, go to a panel or something, and I can hear a voice through the open window, and I realize that a friend of mine is in the room directly, the floor ahead. And he's rave. No, no, I'm sorry. The, I'm the, sorry. The, the the floor below. He's right, in the right. he's in the floor directly below, and he's telling a friend of his about this great book that uh, that just came out that that was written by a friend of his called the Quicksilver Screen. <laughs> and he just he absolutely he's he's telling his friend, yeah, I have to check it out. It's a great book, and I get this great crazed idea. I gr I, I have copies of the book, right? So I grab one of the copies of the book. I grab my belt. I tie it around the book. I lower it through the window so it bangs against the window so that while my friend is describing this, the book magically appears. Oh, yeah, that is perfect promotion, I yeah. think. You know. that's, that's probably the best piece of self-promotion I've ever done. <laughs> Would you like to see a copy? Sure <laughs> Would you like a sample? Uh, one of the great things for me uh, with VCon was a chance to meet uh other meet other writers meet authors uh i would be i was at the reading and i, I was sitting at a table and finding myself talking with writers who'd been published for uh, quite a while and and it was a sort of a sort of a shock a wonderful moment for me of um sort of say oh here's a real person who's done this um say for yourself um, not not so much for VCon, but just say in general, talking about your writing experience. Um, oh, I, yeah, because you had said that a, as a kid you had this notion of the video camera, and so say. Um, well, I'm more old school. It's more like you, you know, film projector. Video, video camera is <laughs> super is, eight. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Before, oh, not even before then. No, I'm talking old style canisters on reels. Well, let's go back to the beginning, and, and you're your SFF or your yeah. the the beginnings of writing and because you said sorry but you said that that it was um that you knew at a young age that you wanted to do this thing mm -hmm. it, it took me a while and um but say for you like what was the beginning like well for me I was always an avid reader and uh mm -hmm. you know I, I I taught myself how to read before I hit school and uh I grew up in a very small town in Saskatchewan, which was meant that the school I went to was largely populated by farm kids who, uh, well, let's just say they did not value education or imagination in general. And I, you know, I, of course, was bullied rather severely, mm. and it didn't help that my father was a teacher at, this, at the same school. But I retreated into books, oh. and so, you know, as a result, I would just avidly read I would you know one of these readers that would go through a book a day if I could even as a kid and very quickly discovered that I mean I went through a lot of different genres but science fiction was the one that seemed to be my favorite and uh, I just knew at, a, at an early age this is going to wind up being what I was going to do and you know I mean and when I I finished school and uh, went out into the world and got a job and did the various things that you do in your twenties. Even even so, I always I, I still knew in the back of my head that eventually I was going to be a writer. And when I was around twenty five, uh, my brain said, "Okay, it's time to get serious." 
right, it's it's time to do it. And I went, okay. Awesome. And uh, was amazingly lucky and blessed in the sense that uh, I wound up I wound up taking uh, a course with a writer named Crawford Killian. Yes, he's still here. Yeah, yeah, yeah in North Van. Uh, he was doing uh, free critiques at the public library, and a friend of mine in the SF group uh, was handling the uh, the organization of that. The, right. And and so I said, okay, you know, you know, I have a short story that I've written, and you know, sign me up. And so Crawford read my short story, and the first thing that he said to me was, this is not a short story, this is a novel. Awesome. If you write this novel, I will help you sell it. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, and you should take my course uh, at Capilano College, which is all about, the point of the course was to write three chapters and an outline of a novel, and to submit it. I did that. He, he contacted his editor, and uh, it wasn't like it was a, you know, a slam dunk, mm. but it did get me to the head of a very long line. Right. You know, got me basically in the door. And uh, about nine months after that, I got a phone call at seven in the morning. And uh, <laughs> probably the most exciting phone call I've ever gotten in my life. Right. Where the, the two questions were, uh, oh, is, oh. Is, this Don, is this Don DeBrant? And I said, yes. <laughs> uh, have, you, have you sold your novel yet? <laughs> I said, no. Would you like to? <laughs> and uh, yeah, I... I, I I took that. I was I was naked the entire time uh, during that conversation, and when 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 I hung up, shaking from excitement, I just threw back my head and yelled, "I'm an author!" Because at that point, I was. Oh, I can know. That's that's fantastic yeah. with visuals. Oh yeah. Well, sorry about the visuals. Uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> apropos, apropos. Uh, and was was this Quicksilver screen? This was the Quicksilver screen. Très bien. Um, and it's. Is is it is it cyberpunk or is yes. it? Yes, it is. Cyberpunk. It's okay. definitely cyberpunk. Uh, my six my novels that I wrote after that, right. I branched out into things that are a little, little bit different. But at that point in my life, I was really heavily influenced by writers like uh, William Gibson, and uh, you know I I just loved his prose, and so I, I really wanted to write a cyberpunk book. And even though the idea is 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 a sort of a classic science fiction. Approach where you, you you take a single idea and goes, what would happen if you did this, and then examine the world that would be created. Right. The uh, the filter that I ran it through was very definitely a cyberpunk filter. And then, um, did you say con did you continue on in that sphere? Because because I know that you you went to to Angel eventually. Yeah. Uh, no, after I had I had the classic uh, sophomore novel. Ah, problem where right. I well, it wasn't so much that I that I, I didn't have any ideas. It was that the the idea that I came up with wasn't very good, and I, I had to write an I had to write an entire novel to discover the difference between plot and story. Thank you. And uh, I yeah, it was a hard lesson, but it was like, but I did learn it, and that novel got trunked, and uh, I went on to think about other things, and eventually came up with. An approach that I call that I called cyber folk, oh, uh, which I wound up uh, writing a trilogy. Okay, uh, my cyber folk trilogy. It, it, that reminds me of I was talking with Josette Josette Kernahan 
and she mentioned um, filk music and sort of mm-hmm. the the rise and fall of filk, and that got me looking it up, and and just was like wow, you know these sort of pirate tales in outer space. Yep. And, yeah, fantastic stuff. A grand old tradition in in science fiction fandom. Was was that was that a kind of connection with uh, with your cyber folk? Maybe subconsciously. Um, for me, it was that I'd always been really intrigued by tall tales. Mm. That was a genre, you know, tall tales and folk tales were uh, something that I, I consumed a lot of as a kid. Uh, and I got introduced to things like the Paul Bunyan tales by my, by right. my father. Right. And I just loved those stories. And it suddenly occurred to me when I was thinking about these different tall tales is that the story of John Henry. Uh, was, train? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, right. Uh, the, the Steel Driving Man. Yeah. Was really a classic science fiction story of man versus machine. Okay. Nicely uh, done, yeah. Yeah. yeah and yeah. I and I thought, well what if I if I what if I took that and, and you know, extrapolated it and put put it in a different planet and, and you know, made him made it not, not so much man versus machine as cyborg versus AI. And then I started thinking about okay, but how can I subvert this? How can I, I, I really play with the ideas and, and do things with the conventions that you wouldn't expect? And that I came up with a, what I thought was a rather clever twist, which I'm not going to tell you what it is, in case <laughs> anybody wants to go out and read Steel Driver. No spoilers, okay. Um, and uh, and I and I realized I had a really strong novel on my hands, and and it it wound up selling. And I think my probably my my proudest moment from it is the uh, the alien race that I created. Uh, I was on a panel with Larry Niven, and he was impressed. Oh, fantastic. Larry Niven is impressed by your aliens. You know you've done something, right? Right. Ring world. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's my memory of, of aliens and et cetera. Yeah. yeah. The, puppet, From, the, yeah. Pu- the puppeteers. Yes, yes. Amongst many others. Right? Mm. Um, I, my, my train of thought right now is almost looking at Changes in changes in writing interest or say style going from say Quicksilver screen, uh, then to Angel where you're in. Sorry, but I'm looking at it as that there would be these constraints which can be good, uh, and then it, I think it's CSI as well, isn't it? That's right. And uh, so you know further constraints, but then for me there's this explosion of creativity in the crossover. Well, thank you. And so I'm I'm I'm. I guess my question, my burgeoning question, is the um, do, do you see it sort of say as a as a as a balance that the crossover, you know, you can take care of of so that sort of the wonder and the creativity, and then you say have other projects, or are you just sort of funneling everything into the crossover and just loving it? I'd say it's the latter. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, my creative process is. I describe it as I, I, I write the same way I cook, which is to say I get as many ingredients as possible and throw them all together. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I picked that up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's if, awesome. If, if, if you've read some of my stuff, you realize I'm, I'm an everything but the kitchen sink guy. Uh, which means that as, as a natural extension, I'm interested in a lot of different genres. Right. So, you know, after I'd uh, done three science fiction books... I was sort of, you know, in between projects, and at this point, when I heard that they were going to spin uh, Angel into his own series, off, uh, a spinoff of, of Buffy, right? I immediately went, 
there will be novels. And if there will be novels, I want to write one. And, and Buffy had, had been a big enough hit at this point that I knew that there were Buffy novels already. So I immediately got on the phone to my agent and I said, there are going to be angel novels, I want to write one. And I was, I was vain enough to think that, I, because I jumped on it right away, that maybe I'd be like number one. And uh, no, I wasn't. Mm. But I was number five. Right. I, I got to write the fifth. And I was still, and, and it's set still in the first season. Well, it makes sense because, say, in my mind, you're you're a super fan. You're at, there at the beginning. You're oh, yeah. hooked. Yeah. You know, right, the characters, the yeah. arcs. Yeah. Yeah. I was very, very familiar with it, and so, uh, and that got me sort of into the world of doing media tie-ins. And uh, sadly, while I, I was not able to sell uh, more than one Angel novel, uh, I did sort of get an introduction. Let's pause for a second. (laughs) We're just going to pause for a second while uh, this uh, motorcycle takes off. Uh, We are back, Sands Motorcycle, with Don DeBrant. We were just talking about um, media tie-ins and your experience starting with Angel, and then you moved on to other, can I say, franchises? You can, because that's what they are. yeah, I was uh, between contracts, which is to say uh, I had written a couple of, th- of uh, thrillers, and uh, they'd done so-so, you know, they, they, they weren't, well. Was well, that a series? Um, no. No, okay. Right. I, 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 did, I did two different, uh, one, one was a thriller, uh, a, you know, sort of a serial killer thriller, yeah. and one was a mystery set at Burning Man. Right. Which was, as far as I know, it's the only book to be set completely at Burning Man. Uh, sorry, segue. Did you actually go down, research, come oh, yes. back? Oh, okay, yes. all right. Yeah. I, 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 I went down to uh, Black Rock City, which is a temporary city that only exists for a week in the middle of a desert. That's fantastic. And uh, it struck me that in mysteries especially, there are, no, there are, there are particular mysteries that are novels of place. You know, where really the the setting the setting defines it. Mm. But, you know, there mm. are, are New Orleans mysteries and there are uh, New Mexico mysteries, and and each one of them is its own little subgenre. Where the location, like Florida mysteries, are always almost always very very quirky and and funny. Right. Uh, but uh, as I was wandering through Black Rock City for the very first time, which is a city which is basically 50,000 people getting together to play City for a week uh, <laughs> and, and to display some absolutely amazing art. It struck me that there's no better city in the world to set a mystery of, of, of place than, than there. And I, I, I decided right then and there that I was going to, to write one. And it took me a number of years to finally get around to it, but I finally did. And uh, on the strength of uh, those two books, uh, my editor, or rather my agent, called me up right. year, a few years later and said, they need a writer for the CSI Miami. Were you familiar tie-ins. with the I show? Was. I was. I was a big fan of the original CSI Vegas okay. and uh, was a fan of uh, David Caruso's uh, early acting stuff before he, you know, got fired and couldn't seem to get hired again. Uh, and 
I had been quite interested in CSI Miami. This was the first spinoff, and it was still the first season. It was still early days, and they created what looked like a very interesting show, both visually and with the characters. Mm. So I, I had been, so I, again, was absolutely a fan. And when they said, you know, would you be interested in, in, in doing CSI Miami? I said, absolutely. Now, there was only one small hitch, which is that I knew absolutely nothing about forensics. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> However, this was long enough, this was uh, uh, long enough that it was the early days of Google. Research. <laughs> and I discovered, I mean, I was already on the internet, but I wasn't really familiar with doing a lot of internet research. But I discovered very quickly, using this wonderful new tool called Google, that you could learn anything. You could teach yourself anything. And people take that for granted now, but, you know, years ago, that was a real revelation to, to realize that as a writer, um, oh, stuff yeah. that I, that I would have had to, you know, you know, order away, uh, specialized books and, you know, travel thousands of miles to libraries to find special esoteric things or interview professionals. I could just, with the click of a button, learn all of that stuff. Segway. Uh, <clears throat> Your experience with computers, was was that something that had been early on? Or was that, say, um, like, say, when Google hit, then you were, you know, investing in a computer? I was I was never a uh, a big computer nerd. I was uh, not really mathematically inclined enough to really get into it the way a lot of other people did. Uh, for me, it was all about being able to edit on the fly. Because I have terrible handwriting. So, uh, manual typewriter, electric yeah, typewriter. Manual, I, I, I used a manual typewriter in grade nine, uh, because as soon as I discovered here was a machine that could let me put my my words down and it would be legible. Yeah, yeah. You know, and the other thing was the way that I write. I'm continually rewriting. So, if if you take a look at an early notebook of mine, what you'd see would be like literally a, a page that would be seven eighths crossed out and like two sentences because I would have rewritten it that many times. And that's just, you know, yeah. when, when you're on the computer, you can do that and it's all invisible. You can just continually go over and, and, and edit as you go. And so for me, I, I can't imagine writing, I can't imagine writing a book longhand that for that, for me, that would be, be torture, but being able to sit down and tap it out and edit on the fly and, and, that was that was terrific, and then when I discovered the research aspect, wow! I, hey, I taught myself forensics. You know, one of the one of the things I noticed on, I think it was on social media, say Twitter, you'd mentioned pen names, and then on your site it went into more detail. I got to see the actual the different, and is say was that because of the media tie-ins and and to sort of differentiate between say, you know, um, or this, you know, you're not, you're not the sci-fi guy right. now, you're the um, forensics guy. It is a combination of two, of, of, of that and uh, market realities. Uh, and because, quite frankly, I, I'm a comic book geek, and the idea of having a secret identity just kind of thrills me. So anytime <laughs> that I have, yeah. the, anytime I have the opportunity to create another identity for myself, I think, cool, what can I do this time? But uh, well, there, well, there is definitely that element of, yeah, I do want people to look at each one of these names as, oh, well, this person writes this, and this person writes this, and not get confused. 
there's also the simple fact that if you write in a particular genre and your books don't sell better and better and better, mm. then that name dies. Uh. Uh, because every all, ordering is all done by computer, and if a, a bookstore will, they'll simply look at whether or not your sales are going up, mm. and if they're not, they will not order another book by that name. And so you basically have to kill that name and start over. Uh, were were these secret identities? Um, was the agent in cahoots, or or was this more sort of a was it? No, it's 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 one of those things that's just sort of uh, regarded as being a necessary evil that everybody does it, nobody hides it. You know, it's it's not like. Uh, it almost sounds like let's say the ghostwriting thing. Actually, no ghostwriter, and in Vancouver. And um, it, it's just interesting, say, you know, say a, a, a big name farming out uh, projects. Yeah, it's all about branding. Mm. It's, it's all about marketing. It's like, you know, you have to, if you've got a recognizable brand, then you know that people are going to buy that. And the bookstores know that people are, are going to buy that. So they'll buy that. So, you know, it, it, it no longer becomes about whether or not the book is any good or whether or not even the writer is any good. It becomes a all about name recognition mm. so you know once you you have a reasonably popular brand then you you want to capitalize on that and, and some writers of course have done that like James Patterson to the point of you know having having hundreds of books written under their own name that they you know are only uh, peripherally involved with uh, or, you know, involved to the point of, well, they'll, they'll have an idea, or maybe they'll come up with a plot, and then somebody else does most of the, the actual bulk of the writing. Going but not me. I've always <laughs> done my own. <laughs> I've, I've never hit that level of success. Uh, that we know of. <laughs> uh, okay, no, no. But uh, So Whiskey, Tango, Foxtrot, uh, this paranormal series. Ah, uh, yes. Um, Whiskey Tango Foxtrot. How much can you take us there? Is this still early days? Is no, no. Um, Whiskey Tango Foxtrot is a series that I launched a number of years ago. Uh, there have been four books so Oh, okay. Far. There we go. Uh, they've all done pretty well. They've all earned out their advances, which is something that you know not all books do. Uh, and uh, the impetus for the book basically came about because... And the first time I heard the phrase Whiskey Tango Foxtrot, right. which we all know what, what it stands for, uh, I just thought, Whiskey Tango Foxtrot, those are three great character names. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and when, I was, when I was putting together the, um, the synopsis, the, the idea for this series, which, you know, which I, I, w I was designing very carefully, I was sort of, there, were, there was a niche that I wanted to fill and I looked around, and I looked at all the different uh, uh, paranormal mysteries and things, and I realized that there was this little niche of paranormal animal mysteries that didn't seem to have a lot going on in it. Oh. And that struck me as something that I could do a lot, a lot with, especially uh, when it comes to comedy. The, uh, the W2F series is, is very much about banter. Is, is, is this process because I, I remember you just said that you you spent time um designing it right and um is is this is this normal for your process is this is this new it depends for the last um the last two series that i did 
uh, I did a, a series called The Bloodhound Files under the name D.D. Barant, which is the same name that the comic, uh, the crossover, right. is under. And that was my, probably my most popular series. And, mm. and in that one, I did exactly the same thing. I decided, okay, I want to break into urban fantasy. Urban fantasy was very big. But I wanted to do something nobody else had done. I, right. wanted, to, I wanted to subvert the genre. Yes. And so I, I, I looked at it and I went, well, what if I make, what if I sort of take you know, a science fiction trope and I make humans the minority? What if I do, a, do a, a, a portal fantasy where somebody gets yanked to another world where like everyone's a vampire or a werewolf or a golem, which is something that I, that I introduced because they, they hadn't been really, nobody else seemed to be using them. <laughs> yeah, I guess. And, uh, that's the norm, and that's the norm, and and uh, and she's a, a psychological profiler, uh, dealing with crazed serial killers. She, she specializes in you know hunting down Hannibal Lecter types, and the problem is that the, with vampires and werewolves, they're all immune to disease, so they have no mental illness, so they have no experience right, in right. in this. So they need a human being, you know, it's the a human being to to catch another crazy human being. And I and I designed it very very carefully, right down to the, right down to the the, the personality of the person involved. I, I was very very methodical. And one of the best compliments that I ever got was from a writer named uh, Alexandra uh, Zen, Zen, Zenwick. Oh God! Gonna... What did, what does she do? Uh, she's a writer, uh, very uh, prolific uh, short story writer. Um, Zenwick. I believe that's it. Yeah. Double check this later, because I, I do not want to get it wrong. She's really, really talented. I'll put it in the notes. But when she read uh, one of my Bloodhound Files books, she was she was blown away by, by the character. And she said, how did you do that? She, even, her weak, even her weaknesses yeah. are strengths. And, <laughs> and it's true. Awesome. And I, I, I designed her very specifically so she would have a certain set of, of bad personality traits that would that would plug into the plot just perfectly to advance it. So with your process, like going in the Wayback Machine, and say when you first started out, was, let's see, did, did you have a, a good sense of, say, you know, um, designing a character, looking looking at the, the internal story that's happening versus the outer plot? or And you said you, you had to get there eventually. It, what is the learning curve for like is the learning curve endless for writing i would say that the learning curve is i mean if you're going to be a good writer yes i mean there's there, you can always uh, mm. learn something new and polish your craft but there is also a certain uh, plateau that you hit when you realize that there are certain basic rules and that once you master right. them it's like okay everything after this is refinement right but it's it's like baseball. It's like you know, uh, at, at a certain point, a professional baseball player understands baseball. He doesn't just play it; he understands how it works. That doesn't necessarily mean he's going to be the best player of the game. But you can sit down and have a conversation with him, and you know he can he can tell you exactly what it means when somebody does this, and when somebody does that, and when this hitter does that, and why you should use this guy over here and this guy over there. And you know, it's a it's a basic set of rules that you only get to really, really know 
when you played the game for a certain length of time. Right. And I think all writers go through that. But when it comes to um, really deeply designing stuff, for me, I, I think that was a, a definitely something that I, I tried to focus on. I tried to make part of my craft early on. I used to write, uh, used to read a magazine called Writer's Digest. Oh, okay. And uh, they would have a lot of very interesting articles on on the craft, on crafting characters and uh, crafting scenes. And it was invaluable to teach me all of the nuts and bolts of those things. And one of the things that they emphasized is really knowing your characters. Uh, and for me, when I sit down, I want to know who that character is and what their strengths are and what their faults are and what their history is before I actually start writing. Uh, so you know them. Yeah, so basically. I know th so yeah. I know them. But because this is not a real person, it's mm. not just a question of <clears throat> of meeting somebody and discovering things about them by t talking to them. You're you're actually building this person. So it becomes a question of what do you want to accomplish? You know, what do you want this character to say to your reader? How, you know, in what ways do you want your reader to identify with you, this character? Right. Yeah. You know, there are all of these different little questions where you go, well, okay, I want to make the character sarcastic because I know there's a lo a bit, lots of fans of snark, mm. but I don't want to make them so sarcastic that they're unlikable. And if they're going to be sarcastic, then I'm going to need a foil. I'm going to need somebody that they're going to can be sarcastic too. So I give them a partner that's really good at deadpan. Because deadpan humor is something that's very effective, and if you balance that off, yes, I see you're pointing at the Terry Pratchett book. Yes, I, I, I'm just remembering there was a someone was commenting about it, and that it it was that these just horrendously horrifically funny things are happening, mm. but they play it deadpan. Yes, they are serious, but the events are just you know, yeah, so funny. I'm I'm a big I'm a big fan of deadpan when you can pull it off and, and I I created a a character a golem named Charlie Aleph. Oh, he's the deadpan. He's That's the, perfect. Yes, he's, he's, <laughs> he's the deadpan character, but he's he's also deaf on two legs. So he's the um, the trope is the ultra efficient right hand man. He's he's the Spock to to her Kirk. Right. You know, right. Uh, right. Very nice. And uh, in in this world, there are there are no firearms, so he is also her gun, quote unquote. Oh, um, and and too the humor. I can I can see your humor in in the crossover uh, comic series. You know that definitely. You. That's where it shines through, um, wonderfully, amazingly. Well, we were talking about uh, Creative Ink Festival. And yes, you wanted to give props to them. I do. They are, they are run by. Oh, let, let me see. I know two of the organizers by name: Sandra Wickham and Christine Perron. There are other organizers that I don't know as well, so I'm sorry I can't mention their names. Uh, but they've been doing this for the last four years now, I think. And it started out being a, a very small sort of one-day thing, and now they're up around. 300 people and they four tracks of programming full, mm. a full weekend right. and every, every 
workshop they do is full. Oh, like, wow. Like, the standing room only. Okay. Um, they, they bring in writers from all across Canada and, uh, and the U.S. They, they bring in some, uh, some people that are really well-known. Uh, and it's just a really, it's really very much a writer's convention that if you have any interest in, regardless of what your, your level of, of craft is, if you're interested in, in upping that level and learning from other people's, uh, other people's craft and other people's experience, uh, I highly recommend it. One of the things I noticed um, through conversation, and I, I believe it's on their site as well, is, is that if you don't have enough money, if you're, like, say, a struggling writer and um, that they will um, pay your way. The other, actually, other writers will pool money yes. to get you in because it means so much. Yes, and they, you know, they have a program where they do that. I think that's brilliant. Yeah, that just like, boom, right in the heart. Yeah. It was just like, oh. Uh, yeah, when I, I, when, I, when I heard about what they were doing, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm sort of used to going to conventions and, and getting my membership comped because I think that's a fair return for the amount of work that I put in. Mm. But when I'm doing a convention like this that's a little bit smaller, it's like, no, I want to support them. I want to support them financially as well as with my work. So uh, when I was there, I, I volunteered for the registration table. Oh, right. I did panels, and I paid, for, I, pay, I paid the full fee, which was, again, was not all that much. Yeah, that was the other thing is that it's it is um, achievable. There yeah, we go. It's it's much less expensive than than other writers' conventions. Let's talk about uh, conventions. Let's talk about um, VCon. Your the early experiences of VCon versus um, the, your experiences now. Like say <laughs> things that have you know the, the pros and the cons. Um, what what are some things that you miss? Oh, well, I, uh, I, I miss the party atmosphere. It used to be that VCon was a uh, party convention, and there were some legendary parties that were thrown. And in the last couple of years, that seems to have really faded, and mm. room parties are very thin on the ground. And, uh, and, and last year, they... Sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. I, I just remember asking around, and um, um, one, one actually it was Josette Kernahan, who's uh, an, an old timer, and she said, you know, oh, if you look, go around, there should be posters, right? So I was going around looking for posters. No and, posters, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 uh, kind of sad. I I, I threw uh, a room party, a, a launch party for the crossover, right. uh, and it was very. It was the worst. It was the worst party I have ever thrown. Oh no. And, and I was I was I was shocked because I thought if I can't throw a party at VCon and get people to go, that there's something desperately wrong with the the timeline that I found myself that I find myself in. <laughs> that, that, that's that's one of my concerns right now is uh, boosting attendance, and I'm I'm looking at different communities to uh, to welcome. Like, in, in what sort of avenue can I, say, reach out to? An example would be the, the science guest of honor is this year is um, Dr. Ethan Siegel, who's uh, an astrophysicist from the United States. And uh, I was looking at his, his bio, and I, I listened to some podcasts to get more information. And so 
you know, it's I, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, I can contact the astrophysicists locally, mm-hmm. and so I reached out to them. Uh, he's also part of the uh, LGBTQ plus, mm-hmm. so I reached out to that community, and um, I, I'm, I'm not sure. He and too, he's also Jewish, so I'm going. You know, can I reach out to that community as well? Sure, so, why not? So, so that's um. That for me, that's I, I'm sort of responding to your sort of you know yeah let's let's get let's get bigger parties. <laughs> yeah, it used to be that VCon had the reputation that um, not only did we have parties, but the guests of honor, the guests attended those parties, and so oh. you know you talk to people who used to to go over the years, and they'll say, oh yeah, I got into a great conversation with Robert Silverberg or. Uh, Harlan Ellison or, you know, Robert Zelazny or, you know, any one of, uh, who, who, whoever we happened to, to, to get, it, it would be like, yes, they would go. They, there would be room parties there for a few years. There were hot tub parties too. Oh, wow. Which, uh, I, I was, I kind of informally ran for a while. And there are stories there. Master, master of ceremonies? More or less, yes. <laughs> more or less. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I hate to sound like an old fart whining about the old days, but it, it used to be very much a party convention. And uh, I think partly because that you, you had younger fans coming over from the States. Oh, okay. Where they would go, hey, you know, I don't have to be 21 to drink. And, and, and cider, which is weirdly enough, right across the line, is hard to find, or, or certainly used to be. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. You, you come up here, and you know, all of the uh, the nineteen-year-old fans would be going, yeah, "Let's drink cider." <laughs> <laughs> I, I can remember introducing someone to cider, and they just sort of open, you know, new, new horizons. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just like, wow, <laughs> apple it's, juice. <laughs> it's, it's like beer, but it tastes good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, no, no sweaty sock aftertaste. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, sorry, beer drinkers. Yeah, sorry. Um, but I, th- I think that's a that's a good point because to be to be talking about it because um, it's it's sort of like say the spark and 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 questioning you know sort of like refining it. Okay, well, what is it that uh, a convention does and can do, and what are the memories? The best, the best, um, the best of VCon. Oh, I yeah. have so many memories, but, you know, most of them do involve, you know, uh, well, yes, there is uh, my friend Spider. Uh, I've definitely uh, attended many a convention with him. Spider Robinson. Spider Robinson. Uh, Spider loves to do uh, Beatles sing-alongs. Yes, Josette was telling he's me. A, he's a huge, huge Beatles fan, and for him, one of the most fun thing to do is to get him and a few other musicians together in a room to play guitar and sing Beatles songs. And I've been at a few of those, and they were always always really well attended and lots and lots of fun. Amazing voice. I, I saw a video. and Indeed. Uh, wow. So good, yeah. You can really belt it out. What one? My experience with VCon. So I went to VCon in in the eighties, and I volunteered like right away. Mm-hmm. I was like, you know, I want to get in. I want to, you know, uh, contribute. But my mistake was uh, that's all I did was I volunteered, and I didn't make any connections. The room parties. I didn't go to any of the room parties. I didn't go to see any panels, and I walked away from it just. 
you know, I, I, I had a similar experience the very first time that I ever went to uh, a VCon, was VCon 13, where I didn't know anyone. Right. And so I sort of hung around in the hospitality area and, and tried to make a few connections. And uh, people were, ta- were talking about room parties, but I didn't know how to find them. And at, I didn't know how that part of UBC was laid out. Mm. And there's a high rise, and then there is the... Um, Sort of like, residences, right. and they're very different things. And I, I kept finding these people would tell me where there was a room party, and I would go to a building, and they were like, there wouldn't be that floor wouldn't exist, and it would turn out that I'd had that I had it wrong, that I had the two things confused. So as a result of which, I never found a room party, and, and I began to think <laughs> that people were just putting me on, that I wasn't cool enough to be told, and I and I just had it wrong. Don't invite the strays. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> which is totally wrong. Nobody, nobody at Recon was, was is anything like oh, that. Of course, of course. You no, know, they they yeah. wanted you to go to those parties. So after a few hours, I I wound up leaving and felt sort of you know isolated and and you know bummed out and but I did not give up. Right. And and uh, two years later. A uh, my my cousin and I uh, decided that we were going to go, and uh, we had a, a really really amazing time, a really amazing time, and sort of a life altering right, uh, right. experience. Where at one point, you know, uh, on Friday evening, uh, my cousin looked at me and he said, "I think I have a new hobby." <laughs> That that was it for me. Into this is years later now, VCon forty two, and just last October, and I contacted them. I said I have a book. This is my first. You know, this is my book, baby. And you know, um, can I be on panels? Can I? You know, sort of. Is there a way for me to promote? Um, you know, and not in a and not in a buy my book kind of no, way. But you just wanted to be out there and and meet people. And it and it it was life changing. So like and it that galvanized say say this what we're doing right now and my concern. I want it to happen again. I want it to. Mm-hmm. I want VCon fifty in seven years. I I want that to happen, and I I want to, yeah yeah. There was an experience that I used to be able to always have. Um, and I could probably still have it today. <laughs> uh, Transcend! Which, which was kind of transcendent, where you'd go to a convention, and you'd go to the room parties, and at some point you'd see them. You'd see a young fan, you know, a teenager, and they'd be sitting in the corner with this smile on their face. This stunned look. <laughs> Of dis as combination of disbelief and wonder, because they had found their tribe. That's it. And I, and I used to be able to. I used to be able to do it every year. I could find that, and and I would and I would look around until I found that person, and it would just be. Uh, I would go. I know what you're feeling. I, I was I was talking with uh, Jenny. Um, uh, chair, VCon, and uh, I think I, you know she's uh, I think with the West Coast uh, Science Fiction Association as well, and <clears throat> and just uh, d- describing how it was that it was like that it was like sort of like you know this community of people, and you know all of a sudden we're talking about things like yeah. Angel, right? These these things. So why is this stuff so important to us? 
why are these stories, why are people making these things? There's something really important that we're communicating, celebrating, and all of a sudden we're there. And like you said, there's that, there's that kid, you know, and with this huge shock of realization of who they are. Well, I think what it, I think the process goes something like this. You start out with people that are a little bit different and don't quite fit in and they're a little bit socially maladjusted as 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 youngsters and so they wind up retreating into you know, mm. more fantastic worlds. Mm -hmm. But they also find themselves being somewhat isolated and, and they don't really have any way to meet other people that really, really love the same things they do. And it's the nature of people like us, the nature of fans, the nature of, of geeks is to love something unreservedly. That's kind of the defining aspect of what we are. And when you get people that are isolated, that love something unreservedly, who finally manage to get into a room with other people who feel the same way, it's spectacular. It's, uh, it's actually very similar to what happens at Burning Man, where, uh, as, as, as people call it, the gathering of the tribes. Right, right. And that's very much, very much the same sort of effect, where you have sort of weirdos and outcasts and loners who are suddenly no longer alone. Your description, too, of, of, of that town that is, is created, like, in a sense, more a village. That, oh, it's a uh, community. Yeah. You will never see a stronger sense of community uh, except maybe at a science fiction convention um, that, than you will in Black Rock City. And the thing about uh, the thing about Black Rock City and Burning Man is that it is a socially designed community. Mm. It is ver very much a product of social engineering. Um, they've been doing it for a lot of years, and a lot of thought has gone into it. And they have what are called the Ten Principles which are basically the, the rules for how you should live while you're there. And more than that, they're good rules just to live your life by. And they have to do with things like participating and uh, being radically self-reliant. Ooh, nice. And uh, being, aware, uh, being ecologically aware. Right. And the thing is... Oh, and... Uh, and, and being against commodification. One of the coolest things about Black Rock City is that everything is free. Oh, wow. Um, you pay for, for basically two things. Well, I would say three things. You pay for your entrance. And at that point, what you're paying for is for people to empty the porta potties <laughs> essentially. Right, right. Uh, and in Center Camp, you can buy coffee and you can buy ice. Because ice in the desert over seven days is an important commodity because there are no services you cannot buy anything else everything is free however every, it's it's very much encouraged that people run businesses which are theme camps and people basically it's like a giant potlatch where people compete to see how much they can give away to other people i was going to say so these businesses are actually it's you know they're giving it's all free right so all of the bars, you just you, you go up to a bar, and uh, it used to be that they, they, they started out with a, a barter economy, the mm. idea being that you try to give them something, and then you get a drink or something in return. And the, th the something does not have to be a physical item. It could be a joke. It could be a story. It could 
a performance, whatever it is. Uh, but after a certain point, they, they realized that that was, people were, 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 were thinking, what can I give? And so, so they go up and buy a bunch of little plastic view gauze at a, at a dollar store. And then, you know, the, the desert reflooded with all this, these plastic trinkets that nobody else really wanted. So they shifted away from that towards what they called the gift economy, where it's just, you know, don't worry about trying to, you know, give trinkets away. Just be your best self. Gift your your presence. Gift your your personality. You know, just tr just try to be giving, right? And uh, and you know, it works amazingly well. You wouldn't think that you know you could you could run a city of fifty thousand people like that for a week, but you but you can, and you can just wander around, and people will give you stuff, and and people don't really take advantage of it the way that you think that. They, you would because after a certain point especially when you're out there for a week it changes your brain yeah that like, sounds like kind of like camping it it, it, it really it alters it, you're suddenly reality becomes a very different thing yeah, yeah, yeah. you know it's you're you're it's it's almost cult-like uh, because suddenly you're surrounded by people that all seem to care about you they're all trying to care about you. And bringing this around to VCon, because this sounds, it's just so, it resonates mm -hmm. that um, here's, here's a group of people that care, right? They, they, yes. they have this experience. They want to share it. They want to, uh, you know, help to, you know, others to have a good time. Um, it, there's elements of Black Rock City. I'm almost thinking it's like, oh, it's like, well, maybe we ought to get some of those principles and kind of move them over. I'm yeah, sure that there's a lot of that already. It would not be a bad idea to to instigate some of the ten principles. There, there used to be, um, we there used to be Black Rock City panels, Burning Man panels, mm. for the last couple of years, uh, by uh, usually put on by one of the past chairs. Oh, uh, okay, Chris. Okay, uh, he would often. Because uh, he he he's a bit of a proselytizer. Because <laughs> I introduced him to Burning Man. <laughs> <laughs> Come with me, <laughs> and it changed his life. Okay, okay. And you know he is now very much a burner, absolutely in spirit and in life. And uh, so I think a lot of that spirit wound up being suffused into some of the convention, and is still there. But. As, as far as parallels go, I think what I need to mention is Spider, Spider Robinson. Mm. Uh, one of the most famous quotes from his Callahan's books is the, uh, the central principle that the place is founded on, which is uh, shared joy is increased, shared pain is lessened. Shared joy is increased, shared pain is lessened. I like that. Yeah. Okay. That's the principle that the place is built on, and I think that principle resonates very much so in 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 places like Black Rock City. I'm just uh, I'm looking I'm looking forward to the next the next VCon and sort of already preparing because last year was say my first doing panels right. so I'm so I'm already preparing panels and thinking ahead. Um, I had some ideas, but I, I, I didn't volunteer to moderate. Ah. And so they, I, I noticed that my suggestions got sort of moved or altered or uh, uh, changed around. So I'm, 
I'm hoping that uh, offering to moderate that that will so that will that will probably get you a little more traction. Yeah, yeah, a little. Yeah. Um, how about you? Say in 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 preparing um, to to go to the con. What sort of what sort of th- is it? Is it just a matter of say you know setting the date and then okay I'm going to go and do um, do 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 you sort of like because it's local right? Do you sort of travel back and forth or do you actually get a room and? Uh, I generally get a room. Uh, bec- usually I get a room because if there are going to be parties, you know you don't want to be trying to stumble home at 4 a.m. You just want to be able Good to go point. to your room and crash. Good point. Uh, I'm not sure what I'm going to be doing this year, uh, simply because if there aren't any parties, there doesn't seem to be a lot of reason to have a room. Uh, I'm going to have to talk to Josette and uh, to sort of like set up a super party. I think that would be a really good <laughs> idea. At one point, I was I was going to volunteer to be a party coordinator. Mm. For for VCon, I think it was something that they they actually needed and never put into place. And you know, like up until now, that hasn't been necessary because parties have just happened. Would you like to work together on that? Yes, as a matter of fact, I would. All right, this the, a handshake just yeah, happened. And let me tell you, you know, when it comes to parties at VCon, you're looking at somebody with a lot of experience. <laughs> you know, uh, I have a, I have this is totally unrelated and yet related. Um, this was during the nineties and, uh, I was, I was off and, uh, doing wild stuff and, uh, I was, I was invited to go to a, a party, right? And it was happening at the Woodward's building, which is this, uh, old, um, what would it be? Department store. Yep. Yeah. And, uh, it had gone out of business. They were trying to figure out what to do with it. And so somebody was holding a party there. And so I received invitations via these, uh, f- friends of the underground, and so ah the infamous underground party. So I, I so I sort of showed up at this back door entrance and we went in and there was uh, you know, it was a bit surreal. I wasn't sure what was going on because right. it was just so different. Mm-hmm. And we sort of like funneled from you know room to room to yep. room and then finally it was over and we were outside and it was like you know what what was that and. <laughs> I had just experienced the first rave in Vancouver. Yep. And I, I didn't even know until years later, and somebody told me, I was like, Moss, you were at the first rave, right? Like, really? <laughs> yep. And that, that, that culture is actually still alive and well, and, large, was, and largely funded, not funded, but right. largely propelled by the burning community. Yes, that, I've, I've noticed that sort of tie-in crossover. There, there is a lot of overlap in between... Um, the communities of uh, kink and uh, house music mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, and Burning Man, uh, including a lot of different festivals, outdoor festivals that happen that, again, have all sort of a crossover to all three. Right. As a matter of... That's something that, that Burning Man has encouraged from for many years now is... They, they want to spread their message. They want to you know, spread this idea. So now you have hundreds of different satellite festivals. Oh, fantastic. I did not know this. Yes. Uh, the one here is called Burn in the Forest. Okay. And uh, same, it's the same idea. It's, it's not nearly as large, but there are still hundreds and hundreds of people show up. And it uh, has been held in various places, sort of in the interior of B.C. This, they're just moving to a new place this year, a, a small little 
lake community. But it's the same idea where for a weekend they have, you know, continuous music and dancing and art installations and theme camps where they encourage people to get involved and play with each other in different ways. Some of them adult-oriented, some of them quite innocent. It's, it sounds very tribal, say, you know, very you, tribal. You, have very the, tribal. you have the village and then sort of like, you know, these, the, tri- the children are growing tribal up and in a good br- sense. breaking off. Not, yeah, yeah. N- not tribal in the sense of my tribe against your tribe. Right, tribal, right. tribal in the sense of you are all invited. Right. You are all. That's one of the nice things uh, about, about any kind of burner event. You get the feeling that you can walk up to any stranger and start strike up a conversation. I, I want to say that it, I'm always coming back to VCon and just sort of, um, uh, it, it just it felt so great, and it just, just say that you know conversations happening, and even if you have that, per- I have that sort of standoffish personality, um, I, you know I don't want it, but you know people I was making bridges even mm-hmm. even though I you know just by nature I was like no nope, no, nope. um, let's see I was gonna say, oh yeah um, just to finish up I wanted to talk about uh, the crossover and my webcomic yes and and I want to recommend people to to take a look at it. Just to have yourself challenged, just to have yourself entertained. So it's at it's at the crossover dot uh, the comic series dot com. Yeah, yeah. And okay, <laughs> set us up, bring us in, brother. Set us up. Okay, <laughs> mothership has arrived. Uh, the crossover is set in a uh, multiversal bar. It uh, takes it takes a lot of its. Uh, sort of setting and impetus uh, from bar stories like Callahan's, which are part of an entire sort of subgenre. Right, okay. Uh, and I love the idea of bar stories because there are certain kinds of stories that only get told in bars, and they almost always have some sort of element of the fantastic about them. And to set it in a, a bar that's a crossroads of the multiverse gives me almost unlimited storytelling. The main character is an alternate version of Alice, mm. Alice in the Looking Glass. Yes, yes. That uh, named Liss, and what she is is she is a thief. She specializes in stealing what are called artifacts, and an artifact is an object from an alternate reality, from an alternate fictional reality. So an artifact would be something like Sherlock Holmes' magnifying glass. Uh, so she travels to these these different alternate realities, uh, steals a, a, a an, an, an object, and then sells it to a collector. Oh, fantastic! You, usually, she works on uh, you know somebody will send her to, to get a particular thing. Sometimes she works on it more like, mm, well, this is a cool thing I could steal. I'll just go for highest the highest price, you know, highest bidder kind of kind of deal. And uh, and this. This uh, this lets her uh, travel around to all kinds of different realities, get into all sorts of, of hijinks, and uh, deal with all sorts of very, very, very weird and unusual situations. And that about wraps it up for us. Um, I just want to say a big thank you to... Uh, Dawn, uh, this has been amazing, and there's been a lot of wonderful uh, crossovers. There we go. Uh, thank you so much, Don. You're, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. And uh, thank you for listening, and take care. <laughs>